to about two hours ago, I heard, and I, since you're here, you must have heard as well, the emergency podcast bell ring, summoning us to another episode of Clauses and Controversies without a guest to a deal with apparently an emergency. And I'm looking at my my emergency show notes here, and they tell me a bunch of things that I guess we need to talk about, uh, ranging from CDS contracts on the Russian government to this question of state succession and, and, and that what point one country's debts uh, maybe get inherited by another country. But they start at the, at the very top in, in bold, all caps text. Uh, so I guess this means we need to start with this topic. There are questions about, here it just says weird Russian contracts. So um, there must be more weirdness in the Russian bond contracts other than what we've talked about already. Uh, and I guess maybe that's a good place to start. And, and I wanted to ask you if you maybe could talk about one weird clause in the Russian bond contracts that um, uh, that both you and I have noticed, and that's this alternative currency event or alternative payments clause. I've seen a bunch of stuff in the press where people are wondering what it means if the Russian government decides to suddenly start paying its dollar or euro denominated bonds in rubles. And, you know, that would be an easy question to answer in most settings, because I think we would just say that's a, that's a default. You can't just pay in your own currency and subject people to currency risk all of a sudden. But maybe that's, a, that's not quite the case for these Russian bonds. So, um, What's going on here, and what is especially puzzling about these alternative payment clauses? Oh, there's so much here. You know, we briefly talked about it last time on our what I thought was our going to be our one and only emergency podcast about this. And then this particular thing blew up in our emails and messages. Because it turned out that a lot of people had a lot of money at stake. So just to step back a little bit, and this is a question I hope that we'll talk about. This Russian, these Russian bonds have a lot of anomalies, weird clauses. And I can't really tell how many of them are goofs. And how many of them are strategic genius moves uh, by the drafters for either Russia or the investors? Now, based on our experience with sovereign debt contracts over the years, uh, I suspect that you and I both would conclude goofs. But let's let's talk about let's talk about them. So. The alternative payments clause is implicated, and we didn't talk about this at all, is implicated because of CDS contracts. So credit default swap contracts that it turns out a number of big institutions wrote on Russian debt. So there was an article in the Financial Times about how PIMCO, which I always thought was just a buyer of government debt, has been writing massive amounts of protection on uh, Russian sovereign debt. Now, if, they, if they've written all of this protection and Russia starts paying its debt in domestic currency, then the immediate question is, is that a default? And normally, in the modern day, you would think that is a default. I have to say that um, this is not, as a historical matter, this is not completely clear in the bonds in the 1800s and early 1900s when wars were much more common. They used to have provisions allowing for payments in alternate currencies and if memory serves, they also had provisions to deal with what happened if there was a war and, you know, you were a bondholder in a country that now is at war with the issuer. I don't remember exactly what the clauses said, but 
they did anticipate wars and the Russian contracts seem to anticipate uh, the possibility of sanctions. And I, I guess that that makes sense because most of what we're looking at are bonds issued after 2014, after Russia goes into Crimea. And maybe Putin gave the instruction to his bond negotiators uh, that, hey, look, I might be going in and taking more of Ukraine or more of other countries. So think about that when you're drafting uh, my contracts. So th that's, that's, that's sort of the backstory of these alternate payment clauses that they seem to be drafted to allow Russia in more recently issued bonds to pay in rubles. Is that, is that your sort of understanding? And that's how it triggers the CDS contracts. Although CDS contracts are not the bond contracts themselves. Many of the people who've been emailing us questions uh, get confused between a default on the bond and a default on the CDS contract. So the bond could say it's not a default to pay in rubles, but the CDS contract, which is an entirely separate contract, which is just basically providing insurance on the bond, could say it is a default on the CDS contract if you pay in rubles. I guess that's right. I mean, whether it's a credit event for CDS purposes could technically be a different question. And I confess, I don't know a whole lot about, uh, I don't know enough about those markets. It strikes me that it would be maybe a little bit unorthodox to have a CDS trigger when the issuer was actually in compliance with bond obligations. I mean, conceptually, there's no reason you couldn't say, well, I want protection from this alternative currency thing, but I haven't heard anyone uh, suggest that that's the way these CDS contracts are written. At least the people who've uh, contacted me haven't suggested that there's a distinction between default on the bonds and the CDS question, but maybe there, but maybe there is, I, I really don't know. I yes. guess one, just, um, you know, again, it would be good if we had the CDS contracts in front of us, um, which I don't at least, uh, but remember the collective action clause drama and mm -hmm. around Greece and it, is, it would not, if you use the collective action clauses to reduce the amount due, uh, if you use them successfully, then it's not a default on the bond because you're actually in a consensual way uh, reducing the amount that you owed. Are you talking uh, about the restructurings of the English law bonds or are you talking about the, the not a CAC that was enacted legislatively? Just, just so our listeners no, are clear. Just the English law bonds. Thank uh, you. Yeah. So we're the, talking about the real collective action clauses. Because people might people might understand how retroactively legislating a CAC could be problematic. <laughs> Bingo. So for the use of the real collective action clauses, and I might be getting Greece might not be the right restructuring, but it was it was one of the recent restructurings. The, the CDS contracts have been written so that even if it's not a default on the bond officially if you use the collective action clauses to reduce the amounts owed, it counts as a uh, default event for the CDS contract. Now, my sense is that these Russian CDS contracts were not written well enough to take into account this uh, possibility of payment in rubles. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have all these people sending in questions to the determinations committee to find out whether or not uh, this is a credit event. And I, I think this is the backdrop to the question of uh, whether or not these clauses have actually been triggered. So I'm wondering, shall we talk about the actual clause itself? Sure. Can I just, to frame that discussion, let me just say one thing, which has been troubling me a little bit. So your the context you gave about what these clauses presumably are trying to do, I think is a little bit important here, since it suggests that the clauses are allocating risk of sanctions as between the Russian government and the investors. And I think 
one reading of the clauses is that investors are actually agreeing to take on sanctions risk in the sense that they're willing to uh, allow the Russian government to pay them in rubles in the event of sanctions. And, and if that's the the how one understands the context that produces these clauses, I think that might be relevant when we try to figure out what the actual language means. Yes, I think that's exactly right. If you just read the contract, you would think, oh, the investors agreed to take on sanctions risk. Now, if you read the emails and text messages from the investors or uh, holders of CDS protections, I think you would then think investors had no clue as to whether as to the fact that they were taking on this risk. But um, I think your read is entirely fair. As a matter of contract interpretation, a judge putting aside any uh, hostility that the judge might have towards uh, the current Russian government uh, would probably say, hey, look, you guys, you guys, investors, you took on the risk of uh, sanctions and you took on the risk of Russian misbehavior and um, they can pay you in rubles, at least on the handful of contracts that were written with this provision in it. But the provision itself it's a little bit messy, I think. Uh, I'm, I'm not actually, I'm not sure how it works and who gets to determine uh, whether or not they can pay in rubles. That's the, that's the question I think one should be asking here. But, but the big picture framing that you're giving uh, is exactly right. So now we're sort of going into the weeds of how does this provision actually work? And I actually, I want to suggest maybe that the context cuts a slightly different way in that when I read the literal text of the provision, I see all kinds of arguments that an investor should be able to make to suggest that the Russian government should not be able to pay in rubles. Because the most important text, to my mind at least, is the language that indicates that the Russian government can pay in one of these alternative currencies, including ultimately rubles, if it's unable to pay in dollars or euros or Swiss francs or what have you for reasons beyond its control is the language. And it's easy to see the argument that the present set of sanctions, if we assume that the sanctions are what's prohibiting the, the payments, it might be a little more complicated than that. But it's easy to see an argument that none of this is beyond the control of the Russian government. You turn the tanks around and the, the sanctions will eventually go away. Um, but what I'm suggesting, I guess, is that- Mark, can we, can we just, can we rewind and go through this slowly? Because uh, you, you've clearly read this clause much more carefully uh, than I have. Uh, so th there are crucial words here that I'm not sure whether you were just giving them as a simplification or they're actually in the provision. So uh, you said stuff about unable, inability, and then control. Can you, can you tell us exactly what the language is and uh, whether, like who decides what, what's what? And uh, okay, I'm gonna add one more question. What you described just seemed like kind of like the impossibility doctrine or something like that, but, but that, this is a contract clause. Sorry, I have so many questions. I, I know, and I think all of them are interesting, but I want to, let's focus just on text for now and not questions about who decides. I think those are, those are separate and interesting. So the, you want the language, and now I have found the language. So here's the language I'm looking at in, this is the 2019 prospectus from March, 2019. Alternative payment currency means US dollars, pounds sterling, or Swiss francs, or if for reasons beyond its control, the Russian Federation is unable to make payments of principal or interest in any of these currencies, Russian rubles. So the, the question is whether the present circumstances are reasons beyond the control of the Russian Federation. And the 
question I wanted to raise to you is, while I can see an argument that if we're just reading these words, the present circumstances are not beyond the control of the Russian Federation because its behavior in invading Ukraine has prompted the sanctions. On the other hand, if the whole point of the clause is to put sanctions risk on the investors, well, who? maybe we shouldn't care. I mean, after all, the sanctions were never going to be imposed for nothing. They were going to be imposed for some kind of bad Russian behavior. And here we've got bad Russian behavior. Maybe the point of the clause is that investors just agreed to accept payment in rubles when Russia behaves badly. Oh, this, all right. It's hard, the clause is, <laughs> the clause is unfortunately drafted, I think. One of the judges I had I worked for years ago would have said it, it, it's just gibberish. But can can we think in historical terms uh, about a set of events that may, might parallel this? And you can tell me if they don't. So we in our respective classes, uh, including this year, have talked about the U.S abrogation of the gold clauses in 1933, where the US said, uh, we're, yes, we promise to pay you investors either in uh, currency or in gold. And that was clearly uh, protection for the inf investors against inflation. Then the US passes a law uh, saying that it's illegal to hold gold. And then, then they abrogate the gold clauses. Investors sue, saying you promised us to pay. Uh, you promised to pay us in gold if we wanted it, uh, and we wanted it in gold. That was an allocation of risk uh, uh, to you in case there was inflation or you engage in some other uh, monetary policy sh shenanigans. And the court said, and this is the U.S. Supreme Court in 1935. The court basically said, look. We're not going to look at allocation of risk and all of that, you know, blah, 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 economic stuff. We're just going to look at what happened. And the U.S. is unable to pay uh, you in gold because uh, some other U.S., hypothetical U.S., passed a law saying you can't pay in gold. I mean, if Putin says you may not pay in foreign currency, then the, the Russian treasury can, can say under, if, if you draw the parallel to what the US did in 1933, we are unable to pay. Putin says you cannot pay. So that, I, I mean, I, 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 I realize this is, I am taking something from, you know, close to, a, close to 80 years uh, back. And uh, now we're talking about international bonds and those were domestic bonds, but isn't that essentially what we're talking about? So now I think this question highlights maybe the importance of asking who's going to be making this decision, what tribunal is going to be making this decision, because that sounds to me like the way, for example, a Russian tribunal might conceptualize what has happened here. Uh, whereas to my mind, and I, I suspect maybe to the mind of a judge in the United States or London or, or in New York or London or, or um, a similar place, doesn't this kind of look like, if we interpret the alternative payment clause to let Russia pay in rubles, doesn't it look like investors have agreed to basically finance Russian misbehavior Yes. Would, you want, would you want to enforce a clause like that? Given well, a choice, would you interpret a clause to have that effect? Okay, I'm not going to answer that, that question directly because I think there's a threshold question that we have to answer that, that these bonds don't give you a clear answer to. And the, so the bonds are, one of the things that they have is like this very sort of uh, Russian statement uh, saying, we don't agree to waive sovereign immunity. 
uh, we don't agree to jurisdiction anywhere in, on the planet or you know in the universe. So, I mean, what what does that mean? Like, where the hell does one go to get a determination of these matters? Like, I mean, what what does it, like if they don't they don't agree to jurisdiction anywhere? Does that mean that nobody gets to decide, or does that mean that the Russian Treasury gets to decide? It, it does. It doesn't say you have to go to federal court, federal or state court in New York, or you know whatever the equivalent is in England or Wales. So I mean, somebody has to decide, and I would think a well-drafted clause would say, "Tell me who gets to decide." This one just says no. It seems to say nobody gets to decide. Well, there's a big difference between not saying who can decide and saying nobody gets to decide. So even in a well-drafted, complete bond contract of the sort that you and I are looking at, the contract never or almost never says only courts in the following places may decide uh, disputes under the bonds. What they more typically say is that the issuer agrees that certain courts, typically in New York or London or places like that, will have the power to decide, which is when you're dealing with a foreign country is a nice benefit to have. But when you don't have a clause like that, you're just in the position of any other claimant, the, the places you can go to get a resolution of these issues are determined by laws of jurisdiction and sovereign immunity and so forth. So um, I guess I would want to know where were these bonds marketed? Where do payments run through? But if we assume, for instance, that payments are running to banks in New York and that there was some effort to, uh, to market the, the bonds to investors in New York, then certainly US investors could file suit in New York. It wouldn't be as easy as it would be if the contract had more robust protections for them, but they could probably do it. And the same might be true for uh, investors in bonds where the payment mechanism went through London, right? We, we'd have to find some connection between the bond and the foreign jurisdiction, and then the foreign jurisdiction would probably be able to hear the case. Okay, this is a whole, whole lot more civil procedure, I think. I think you're talking about stuff like personal jurisdiction that I really hated in law school, but I'm, I'm going to I'm going to reveal my lack of knowledge and ask more questions. And I'm going to ask what is surely a really stupid question. But let's say the people in the Russian treasury, who some of whom are really smart, I have to say, from having uh, worked with them in the, in the good days eons ago, uh, they, they have anticipated this. Could they give it? I mean... You talked about sort of you have to file in a jurisdiction uh, which has a lot of contacts or like, you know, I, I remember Penoyer v. Neff, is that the famous case or something like that? Um, or there were cases involving some railroads going through Erie. Uh, or maybe that's not that's not it. But anyway, I mean, Russia is the the is borrowing. Russia is borrowing. Russia is the crucial player here vis-a-vis uh, -vis investors all over the world. So the, the, the most logical place with the maximal contacts with all of this is Russia. So could do the bonds uh, allow Russia to say, uh, we're filing suit in local court in Moscow to ask the judge to tell us whether or not uh, it is unable, it is... Um, we are unable and it's beyond our control uh, to pay in uh, any of these foreign currencies. And once, once that judge uh, makes the determination, it's binding on all other courts uh, anywhere in the world uh, to follow this. Is, is that utterly, uh, I, I, my sense is you're gonna say that's utterly loony, but the, the 
the the document doesn't say that Russia can't be the one filing uh, in in a local court to to get clarity on who gets to decide and what the decision should be. Yeah, I mean, this, I I really think this is an interesting question, but the important place to start is that a standard bond contract also does not forbid what you're talking about. So there's uh, the the typical consent to jurisdiction and waiver of sovereign immunity in a bond contract would not forbid the issuer from doing what you're what you're suggesting. So we've been we've been either referencing or alluding to the U.S. doctrine of personal jurisdiction. That's not. I, I just want to say for um, specialist listeners, that's not technically the doctrine that we would be talking about in these scenarios. But it's a good analogy. So um. Of course, the so an investor would never want to go to Russia to litigate these things. So you're suggesting the Russian government could sue investors there. Uh, whether that's binding depends on the law of the place that uh, is being asked to recognize that judgment. So just speaking from the perspective of U.S. law, you know, U.S. courts will generally speaking recognize the judgment of a foreign court if that court observed something approximating U.S. style due process. And, uh, you know, I'd rate the odds that uh, the judgment of a Russian court getting recognized as somewhere south of zero. Is it possible to have negative odds? I mean, Russia could do this, but the, and of course, presumably Russian courts would agree to take jurisdiction, but the, that, ruling would have no effect unless courts elsewhere recognized it. And of course they would not recognize it, right? I see, um, okay, I, I don't know anything about this, but I, all I remember is that the, the case years and years ago involving Union Carbide and uh, the, the residents of Bhopal who were harmed so badly by the blow up in the Union Carbide plant. And again, I mean, I, I have stayed so far away from civil procedure for, for as long as I can remember, but the US court decided that uh, it was fine for the case to be determined, uh, to, to be decided in India where the courts really, really, really suck even as compared to uh, the Russian courts probably. And the U.S. judge said, oh, no, you, they have all of the necessary protections. Uh, you guys can uh, move your claim there. And then, of course, uh, the people who were harmed so badly by the explosion uh, at Union Carbide got, you know, little uh, to nothing uh, for all of the damage that was caused. And so but but that that's all I have to go on, which suggests to me that U.S. courts take a very expansive uh, view of what is enough uh, to satisfy them for you to be able to uh, bring a case in a different jurisdiction. Uh, but I, I could be uh, I could be totally wrong. And we are all legal realists today. And I, I suspect that. Uh, U.S. courts will not be very sympathetic in this particular instance. So I haven't really, you can tell me that my analogy to the union carbide thing is completely wrong, but maybe at least, maybe the legal realism point is more real. Yeah, I, I without going, I don't remember that much about the union carbide case. I don't think it's a especially good analogy since all of the Western interests and U.S. interests in particular were kind of aligned with not taking jurisdiction there. But, um, you know, I think the, the, your, we are in agreement that it would not do Russia any good to try to sort of preempt this by litigation in the, in the Russian courts. But we, are, we should take a, a break quite soon. Um, Mark, I wonder I if you want to talk about uh, another clause first. I do. Can I ask you just one uh, little question, though? The, and maybe so that another thing that a lot of people have been talking about the clause in terms of like what the outcome is. But you're you're the one who understands litigation strategy. And 
the ambiguities in this clause about both uh, about you know so what who gets to decide how how is it decided uh, the jurisdictional questions all of those potentially give someone like Russia enormous delaying capacity is that like investors are going to be screwed if Russia goes down this path just in terms of their ability to tie this up in the courts forever is that um the the true uh, implication here i think that's right i mean so if you begin with the fact that there's no submission to jurisdiction clause there's also no uh, clause that appoints someone to receive service of process there are all kinds of things you would like to see in this contract that would help you get to and through court quickly as an investor, and those are missing here. So even on the the process, you're talking about a longer and steeper road you've got to climb. And then what you're also adding to that is that, you know, in a normal bond dispute, the merits are easy. There's no disagreement about whether there's been a default or not. They didn't pay, you're done. So the once the investor gets into court, there's not really any uh, merits-related risk, right? So all the risk is going to come when you have to try to enforce your judgment. Here, there's merits-related risk. Russia actually would have, not that it'll get a credible law firm to appear on its behalf to make these arguments, but it at least technically has plausible arguments that it is allowed to pay in rubles. But maybe we should be diehard legal realists here and wonder if Russia would even show up to make merits arguments. Typically, it does not. Um, even under better, even in better times with better relations with the United States, Russia doesn't show up to defend lawsuits against it on the merits. It will sometimes contest jurisdiction, and then it disappears. So um, it might be that the merits-related issues aren't that hard uh, for investors to overcome. I think we should take uh, a quick break and uh, then get to the other clause that you So me too. In our last emergency podcast, we had talked about the very unusual pari passu clause in Russia's bonds and how for the most part that clause is really quite favorable to investors, sort of shockingly so. There's a an aspect of that clause we didn't talk about, and I confess I hadn't even really paid attention to it at that point, although you may have, but that makes it really especially, especially weird. So can you tell us a bit more about what that is? So, I, I mean, I hesitate to even uh, bring this up because it just strikes me as so implausible, but it is there in black and white. So to, to provide some background, the Pari Pasu clause has the potential to be weaponized by creditors if the issuer is paying some creditors and not other creditors. And this uh, weaponization is much more likely if you have a version of the clause uh, that says you cannot weaponize it. And this is what we talked about in our last podcast. Robbins Wigglesworth wrote a really nice piece in FD Alphaville about this. And as I was reading Robbins piece where he excerpted some of the language of the Pari Pasu clause, I couldn't really believe my eyes, and maybe you'll tell me that my eyes are lying to me, but the simple version is that this Pari Pasu clause, while it is the old version, seems to also simultaneously shoot itself, not just in the foot, but also in the brain. Uh, so one could make an argument that the Pari Pasu clause uh, just is an non-clause. So let, let me read you the crucial language uh, of this Pari Pasu clause and try to explain what my concern is. And Mark, maybe you can tell me that the, the, my concern is misplaced. So the Pari Pasu clause says, uh, and I'm reading the simplified version of it from uh, one of the recent bonds. The bonds constitute direct, unconditional, unsecured, and unsubordinate 
designated obligations of the issuer and as at their date of issue, rank paripasu, blah, 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 with all other unsecured and unsubordinated obligations of the issuer. So you, if you read it quickly, you think oh, it's just a normal uh, old style paripasu clause sucks for the Russians because investors can come after them. But let's read it again carefully. It says that the bonds rank paripasu as at their date of issue. Normally the clause says something like the bonds rank and will rank. This clause seems to eliminate the promise of ranking paripasu in the future. This seems to my reading only to say as at their date of issue they rank. So the, Russia is saying when we issued it, they all rank the same, but it's not saying they will rank the same in the future. So in the future, if Russia uh, decides to pay uh, one set of creditors ahead of another set of creditors, could they make the argument that we promised that at the date that we issued the debt, everything was pari passu, but we didn't promise you that we would continue to keep it pari passu. I mean, I, this sounds so utterly ludicrous, especially since, I mean, there seems to be kind of either typos or bad languages language in, in the basic clause itself. So did somebody just forget to put in will rank or did they consciously uh, draft a, a, a very strategic clause here? Mark? Um, so I don't know, but what you're saying is that unlike essentially every other Paripasu clause I've ever seen, which are all written as covenants, right? As promises about what is going to be the case in the future. This one is written as a representation, at least arguably. It doesn't use the future tense. It doesn't include, um, you know, will rank, as you point out. And maybe you could you could characterize that as a omission, just some drafting goof. But it also has this weird language that I, I don't recall seeing in any other bond that you point out as at their date of issue, the bonds rank pari passu. That's new language. That doesn't get there uh, because somebody goofed as a drafter. That gets there because somebody decided to add it. So I've never seen a clause like this before. Just looking at it, it's easy to see how you read it as a representation uh, about the present ranking of the bonds and not a covenant about the future ranking of the bonds. One, one thing that makes it even more confusing, though, is that it's an event of default for the bonds to not rank pari passu. And it would be kind of weird to have an event of default that says, basically, in effect, if we lied to you at the time of issuance, that's a default. Well, like, no shit. Uh, or at least, <laughs> or at least that's a, a source of some liability. Okay, so, so I gotta I gotta ask you about this event of default. So this clause, I mean, I guess you're able to promise stuff that like is completely unenforceable, right? Like we've talked about all those green bond promises that seemed, I mean, that are explicitly seem to be unenforceable. So those, maybe but those, those are sort of <laughs> Those are supposed to be representations, at least from the issuer's perspective, right? We intend to spend money this way, but we're not promising to do it. Same thing here, Russia would say, right? This is a representation, not a, not a covenant. <laughs> and yet it's an event of default. But let's look at those events of default. The guy, I mean, so uh, for anybody who's interested, the, the, these, this language is not necessarily in all of the bonds. And we have not done a survey of a line by line survey of every bond. But uh, this one, I think, is in the March 20th, 2018 offering circular that we have. And the events of default in this you brought up the events of default, like they, they seem to have Paripasu violation as an event of default, even though it's only a representation, not a, a, a promise for the future. But I read those events of default and they are unlike anything I've ever seen because the events of default that are supposed to, if 
The typical thing is if an event of default occurs, then investors can accelerate the obligations. This one seems to say if events of de default other than Paripasu, which can never actually be an event of default, given its unhappy draftings at the beginning of the document, if events of default other than Paripasu occur, nothing happens. Nothing, 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 if I read this. Is that possible, Mark? I'm, I'm just, I, it may be that I woke up this morning with a complete inability to read uh, contract documents, which would be terrible because that's kind of my job. <laughs> um, I'm writing this one off to a typo. So basically, in case it's not clear to listeners, the way uh, the events of default provision would normally look is you'd have a list of events of default, and then you'd have this separate paragraph that specifies the consequences of one of these events of default. And the consequence is always acceleration. Here, that's not a separate paragraph. It's just, it's part of the Pare Passu paragraph. And so just structurally looking at the document, it looks like only a violation of the Pare Passu whatever it is, representation, covenant, only that violation would, would give rise to the right to accelerate. So me too, I'm, I'm calling this a typo. Somebody forgot to hit enter, both because it would be nonsense to interpret the provision this way, but also because, as you know, we're just, right now we're looking at the sales document. There has to be some underlying contract that underlying contract, I would assume, has to relate to multiple bond issuances, and we don't see this weird drafting quirk in the prospectus. At least, I haven't seen it to other bond issuances, although I haven't, uh, I haven't uh, scoured them all. So I'm imagining that if we had access to that underlying contract, we would see something that looks more like a normal event of default provision. But I'm imagining all of those things, and while I'm you know, I, if I were a betting person, I'd, I'd be willing to put some money on it. Uh, the document that I am looking at is weird. It is definitely weird. And if you take it seriously, one reading of it is that only a pare passu violation lets you accelerate. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, like, I, I have to ask you, like, how do these like arguments about typos being made actually work out surely as a matter of contract law that is surely the lawyers for russia are not going to say uh, judge we are, got paid you know fifteen hundred dollars an hour by our client and yet we you know made all of these goofs up and down the contract they're going to say no this was brilliant strategic lawyering on our part and we drafted the contract so that russia uh, would never have its debt accelerated. And that's what they wanted. And that's what investors agreed to. And investors who uh, almost 100% of them have never seen the underlying contract, all they've ever seen is this language in, in the offering circular that they agreed to. I mean, I, I don't even teach the doctrine of typos. Uh, in class. I, don't, I mean, my understanding of the doctrine of typos is that it's basically like if you're a sophisticated investor and you have language there that doesn't give you the right to accelerate, courts like I, you know, you're, you're sort of big boys or big people or big girls. Uh, and, you know, the, it, it is what it is and you're screwed. So can you give us a little bit on the doctrine of typos? Not really, but you 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 um know as well as I do. First of all, there's a difference between explicit contract language saying that you can't accelerate, and what we're talking about here, which is just a an inference from the placement of the acceleration provision in the contract. The other thing I'll say is that, yeah, of course the Russians or whoever represents them will characterize anything that's favorable in the contract as the product of design. But I got to emphasize, we're not reading the contract. I am assuming, and I, I would put good money on me being right here, I'm assuming that the underlying contract where the fiscal agency agreements and the, the um, actual terms and conditions of the bonds have the typical provision where the acceleration part is physically separate from uh, any specific event of default. And if that's true, 
they're out of luck because they're one thing they're not going to come in to court to say is that somehow this weird aspect of the prospectus trumps the underlying contract. Okay, so I, I have to agree with you on the direction of the bet. But again, the, I think you'd agree with me that all of this is fodder for somebody who wants to tie this up in litigation and make and and try to make arguments saying that you're not entitled to accelerate or you're not entitled to bring uh, uh, certain kinds of enforcement claims on the pari passu and I mean this is a this is a world in which speed is of the essence uh, because if you are tied up in litigation for years nobody wants to hold those instruments. I think I think you're right. Uh, and again, this is there are weird aspects of these contracts that on the substance sometimes favor investors and sometimes favor Russia, but the uncertainty in general breaks in favor of Russia each time. So um, the, this is uh, we've talked about how investors have maybe more potent enforcement rights than one might think, but they're not uh, tremendously potent here. So Mitu, in the limited amount of time we have available, maybe we can talk about one final thing, if I can get you to, to, to help me think this through. So as Russian forces push very slowly, it seems, deeper into Ukraine and cause more and more economic damage. I mean, the estimate of 100 billion so far has been thrown around. I, I have to imagine it either is and certainly will be much more. Regardless of kind of the, the political situations that might unfold in terms of whether there is an independent Ukraine, what territory that controls, there are so many uncertainties here. But I'm, I, I sort of feel like at some point, the debt that was Ukraine's ought to become Russia's. And I'm, is that a thing? I know we know that it can sort of be a thing, but I want to know what you think about this. Okay, you, you can't just, you can't open Pandora's box at the end of the podcast. We've got like 30 seconds. Uh, Liana will shoot us. In fact, we probably have minus. 15 minutes because we talked so much about the Pari Pasu clause and Liana probably hates the Pari Pasu clause more than any other clause that we've ever talked about. But since you opened Pandora's box, I mean, we cannot answer this question in a few minutes. So what you're talking about is what we would call, I think, the, the doctrine of state succession, but it's subset about taking over territory. So as a theoretical matter, surely it is the case that at some point, if Putin takes over enough of Ukraine, Ukraine's obligations become Putin's obligations or Russia's obligations, and that includes its debt. But two complications that, we you know, need more time to talk about, so I'll just try to flag them as I see it. One, the law here is really old because the, the behavior that we are seeing is, is not very common in the modern era. So the, the precedents I suspect are things like Texas in 1945 or the Spanish-American War and the, the, the takeover of Cuba in 1898, or uh, the Germany-Austria sort of reparations, uh, the battle about debt in 1935. I mean, there, there might be old, more, but they're all really, really old. And so that, that's one, the law is really old and we don't know what the modern law would be you know, a few hundred years later, uh, my sense from talking to international law gurus is that they haven't really talked about or thought about 
this particular doctrine because nobody thought it was really applicable uh, in the modern era. And the, the second question, and you know, this is something we have talked about in the context of odious debt, and I had wished this odious topic would never come up again, is what happens when there is conflict and Russia claims uh, that Ukraine really is part of its territory and always has been part of its territory, and that Ukraine really is not a separate sovereign, but a rebelling territory, uh, a territory rebelling against the motherland. So then what happens to the debt that the, the rebelling territory issues in order to fight the motherland? And Ukraine is trying to issue debt now. Does Russia have to pay that too? And uh, this, the, you know, the most important precedent here might well be the 14th Amendment. And uh, you know how little I like to talk about the US Constitution. But in the 14th Amendment, uh, the North says we will never pay the debt of the rebelling South or, or words to that effect. And uh, the rest of the world sort of allows that. I mean, what's going to happen? That, that seems kind of like an outrageous proposition here. But I don't think that the law is clear. But Mark, I. I I'm going to give you the last word, and I think it has. We 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 do have to end. We cannot possibly do another hour discussing this this can of worms, or it it just it actually seems too difficult to even describe it as a can of worms. But it's a big, big, big topic. I was afraid you were going to say that, but perhaps there will be a a, a later podcast where we can talk about it because I feel like uh, this is in some ways the big big question that emerges from here. Although, hopefully, I, I don't know how confident I am, but hopefully events will unfold in a way that lets us um, skip it and talk about uh, slightly happier topics. Um, but me too, we've, we've gone on long enough. Um, we, should, uh, we should call it for the day. Mm-hmm.